Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Roxana Namavar is a board-certified psychiatrist and fellow in the American Academy of Anti-Aging, who specializes in integrative and functional medicine. Today, we're going to talk about the role of psychotherapy in understanding what's going on in the world, the future of cellular health, Perceptional studies, yes, perceptional studies, including past life memories and near-death experiences. We're going to go deep on the role of spirituality and science, the science of actually measuring energy, and how science and spirituality can and will intersect. This is one you're not going to want to miss. Roxana, welcome. Thank you for having me. It is so great to have you here. Someone Colleen and I both love. So finally here. It's happened. It's happening. So you're an integrative psychiatrist who's truly integrative. So can you talk about your, your three-tiered approach and what that looks like in your practice? Sure. So my practice is based on a three-tiered approach, like you said. And, <laughs> um, anytime a patient comes in, we really try to focus on their mind, emotionality, body, and spirit. So I, I really don't think you can effectively treat a patient or support them through a healing process without addressing all three of these or four of these really important pieces of their life. So what does that look like? when someone comes in to see you? I know it's hard to generalize. Everyone's unique, obviously, but can you paint a picture of what a typical day in the life looks like with a patient who walks in your office? So I get a lot of patients that come in and will say, you know, I went to my primary doctor and they said, I, maybe I'm depressed because I'm really tired. That's a pretty, <laughs> a pretty typical, pretty typical picture, especially in New York, right? In, in Manhattan, we're all stressed. We're all rushing. Everything is fast. We're trying to be more efficient nobody sleeps well in general and talking to the man who's drinking his black coffee exactly and (laughs) you know and then you throw you know young children on top of it and we're all exhausted so I I tend to get a lot of patients that will say I don't know I'm 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 tired and I want to feel a little bit better but when you really when you really uh, dig into what's going on there's there's so many things that that they can present with so you know really one of the first things that I look at is their physical health right and we do a full functional medicine panel it's it's a lot and go through you know pre precursors to diabetes anti-oxidation cellular health and wellness Um, I do a lot of genetic testing and we take all of these this information and develop them different types of protocols that can actually support their overall wellness their fatigue levels and try to really address what's going on in their body more than just, you know, your typical cholesterol panel. (laughs) And there's a lot of different ways you can do that, including supplements and balancing gut health. I rarely see a patient who comes in with a really healthy gut, which is extremely important for just a biochemical balance of your brain function. So we address gut health, we can do that with a lot of supplements. And but what I found is that there's quite a few patients that don't have healthy gut health and are also impatient to feel better. So a big piece of my practice is sort of morphed into supporting their systems as quickly as possible by doing different types of infusions that are customized for the patient's symptoms and lab work. So that's that's one piece, right? That's the physical piece. Which is a lot, and I love. You're talking to the mm-hmm. guy who gets his blood taken uh, probably once a quarter, and I think my record was 27 vials. 
Right. Yeah. That's about right. That's about, that's, that's, that but it's awesome. About right. It's awesome. You learn a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, I discovered, I've talked about this before, I had homocysteine. That was a way, like, mm-hmm. ridiculous, a record, 63. It was imp- that's impressive. It's a re- I'm six foot seven, so, you know, maybe there's some size going on there. But I got it, got it to 12. I never would have known that it was that high and, and like yeah. potentially life-threatening and dangerous and got it through 12 through supplements. So I'm a huge believer in this. Well, it's also really nice for patients to be able to have some something tangible that they can say, what I'm doing is doing something, right? I have the numbers to see. I mean, there's a really, they get a lot of positive feedback and, and f- you know, get that positive dopamine rush that you're becoming productive, right? And doing something positive for your life, at least from a sense of physical wellness. Yes. So, okay, so that's the physical part. Yes. What's the what's the the next part you work on? So you know, obviously we can do psychotherapy. I think that you know our perceptions, our body is a sensing, feeling vessel. So the way that we you know perceive what's going on in the world, the way that our belief systems interact with our our brain chemistry, and the way that we feel is also really important. So that can be addressed in a number of different ways. Obviously, the most traditional way is psychotherapy. So you know. I do some psychotherapy, but I also have a therapist that um, I, I work with that you know will will address that as well, depending on what patients are looking for. And, you know, psychotherapy is a whole whole another realm of things. There's so many different techniques there that can be supportive, um, and that sort of bleeds us into the spirit piece. And I think that that's also something that's really important that medicine does not address is is what is life to you? What is your sense of purpose? Do you have a sense of spirituality? Did you grow up in a very, you know, very religious household? How are those belief systems that were really ingrained as a young child or not ingrained at all uh, developing and developing your relationship with the outside world and yourself? So I'm curious if if you're looking at on one hand, the, the, you know, call it the chemistry Mm -hmm. and then you're looking at what's happening mentally mm-hmm. and then you're looking at what ha- what's happening spiritually is everyone different in terms of is the chemistry driving what someone is experiencing mentally or is it a spiritual problem mm-hmm. you know is it different for everyone or do you see like at its core it's is it the chemistry or is it the spirit or is it I think that they interact with each other, right? I don't think yeah. we can really separate them, to be honest. I mean, I, th- I think that, you know, when you have a healthy sense of purpose and spirituality, it changes your brain chemistry because your brain chemistry is just signaling molecules, mm-hmm. t- giving you some sort of feedback, just like, you know, there's feedback in your hormonal cycles. So I'd, I think that, you know, in, in medicine in general, we become very compartmentalized and you see one person for this piece of your kidney and one person if you have a broken <laughs> leg and you come to me if maybe you're depressed. But I think there's a real push coming from patients who, who really want to be treated as a whole being and to see, okay, I'm, I'm tired and that could be a thousand different things, right? And if we address as many of those pieces as we can, you're going to have a, an overall better quality of life, which is the goal, really. 100% agree. Mm-hmm. You're preaching to the choir. You're preaching <laughs> to the pastor. So what I think is also so cool about your practice is you're very futuristic. On one hand, you know, I think that the concept of, of treating someone as a whole person and practicing fun- functional medicine is futuristic, but mm-hmm. you, you take it to the next level in some of the testing you do and mm-hmm. infusions. Uh, can you talk us through some of what you're doing there? 
Sure. So uh, there's a lot of, we have to do a lot of lab work, we do a lot of genetic testing to kind of understand the template of your system. And then once we get, once I get that information, I will design different, different types of infusions, assuming that's what the patient wants and they don't, they're not scared of needle. (laughs) Um, So there's a lot of different types of infusions you can do to support cellular health. And that's really the goal of the infusions rather than having to, you know, have your body, have healthy gut, take the food that you eat and go through this whole process to get, get your your cells energy to function properly we're sort of bypassing that and trying to feed your body what it needs in a much higher dosage than what you could actually absorb orally so that can look a number of different ways we do uh, some customized vitamin infusions which can be great for a lot of different things Um, i do use methylated vitamins we do customized bags for each patient so they're made the day before based on the patient's lab work and symptoms so there's different concoctions that can help with anxiety overall inflammation a lot of autoimmune issues chronic lyme is is does really well um i do a lot of glutathione which is the main antioxidant in your system glutathione is difficult to absorb orally so that's one of the great thing you can do for high homocysteine um but just just overall wellness um there's about 90,000 studies on glutathione and its benefits. Although I will tell you, I don't think one person uttered the word glutathione to me in my entire medical school it's career. Funny. I take glutathione. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's great. Um, you can do a lot with alpha lipoic acid infusion, phosphatidylcholine. One of my favorite infusions is NAD infusions. Love NAD here. We have to talk mm-hmm. about that. I, so NAD is basically like the precursor to the energy molecule. So when you, when you kind of give it in an infusion and bypass your your gut you get a really nice um warming in your system and physically it feels like it's it's warming you can kind of when i give it to myself i can kind of feel my cells being revved up and there are some clinical clinical uses for nad specifically when it comes to mental health for example it can help sort of rewire that dopamine cycle that's associated with you know feeling engaged in the world that sense of pleasure but also addiction um i've used nad just for you know a mom that's really tired all the way to to patients trying to get off chronic uses of opiates um i've used it a few times for binge eating disorder with really positive results and you know we also use um ketamine which is i'm sure we'll get into which is sort of new in in the media but not new in the medical community and then um there are some other you know medications that have come out like brexanolone for postpartum depression that are more sort of intense in the pharmaceutical side of things so can you we'll go back to nad and then we'll, we'll go to ketamine so for nad you talked about NAD and cellular health. Can you just like go a little deeper there? Mm-hmm. I, I'm super fascinated. I'm a huge believer. I, you know, I take our NR product mm-hmm. and and just talk about NAD and and what's happening and what it means for cellular health and mm-hmm. why it's so interesting and exciting right now. So. I think that medicine is sort of moving into the space of cellular health and function because you know if you break down your body, healthy cells make a healthy functioning physical body and system and make you feel better. So basically inside of your cell, you have this little powerhouse called the mitochondria and the mitochondria is what's utilized to make the energy molecule. And NAD is key in that process. So if you have any sort of cellular damage, if you have you know, an inability to process the food that you're taking in through your, through your gut, you start to feel fatigued and tired. So what we're sort of doing by giving 
you NAD, whether it's orally or intravenously, you sort of rev that system up and give your mitochondria what it needs to actually make energy and then allow your body to heal itself. And you lose, and NAD declines with age. And I think after age 40, it declines by, from 40 to 60, it declines by 50%. It does. But even if you're younger, it starts declining. And when you're, I always explain it like NAD is something you need for cellular health, mitochondrial health, which which is linked to everything. And it declines with age. And when you're dead, it's at zero. Pretty much. I mean, a lot, and unfortunately, a lot of things start to decline with age. So, you know, we try to. Which is part of aging, it's part of the process. Yes. But again, I think, you know, we think about aging as, you know, do I have wrinkles? Can I fix the aging with Botox? But what's really happening when we age is our cells are sort of becoming less and less efficient. So if we can treat your cells in a healthy way and keep them working as well as we possibly can, you know, that's really what's going to fight aging from the inside out. Mm -hmm. I love that. And to me, you know, at age 45, and I guess I'm a middle age or approaching a middle age and Mm -hmm. and having two little girls, at least least three and Grace is eight months, you know, I think about aging, but I think think about in the context for me, it's not necessarily about vanity. Although, heck, as I age, I still want, you know, I do want to look good, Mm -hmm. but to me, it's, it's about how you feel. Yes. You know, I want to be able to run around and, and play at the park and have, and mm-hmm. it's about how you feel. It's about energy. And it's why I am fascinated and so interested in cellular health because mm-hmm. it all starts from the inside. If you're not feeling good, it, I look at it this way. If you, you could look great, but yes. if you feel like crap, but you what can does see it matter? It. And yeah. you can see it in yeah. your skin, right? If somebody's stressed, you can tell, right? You, you just see it in, in the wrinkles and the qual- this, their skin quality. Um, and so, you know, it really being pretty and healthy really does start from the inside out. And so um, we'll, we'll come back to that, what the, the future has in store there. But I also, you mentioned ketamine and we did a whole podcast on, on ketamine. Mm-hmm. And it, it to me, it's very interesting in terms of a therapy that involves, uh, I don't know how you would classify it, but something uh, mind altering mm-hmm. somewhat mind altering i say like on the spectrum of mind altering it's a, it's, it's it's the low end and mm-hmm. the highest end with i think lsd yeah um but uh, it's it's fascinating because some of the results people are seeing are hard to ignore mm-hmm. so you know, we in the medical community, we kind of known about ketamine. I mean, it's recently gotten a, gotten a lot of press because of the FDA approval. I mean, I think ketamine is a really, specifically for pain and depression, is is a really interesting um, drug. I mean, in in my office, we do it in an infusion series. You can also utilize it in the nasal spray. You know, at least from what I've, what I've seen clinically, the um, infusions are more, much more effective. Um, I would say ketamine would be considered mind altering. I don't know that I would call it altering. I think let's, I would maybe call it mind expanding. Um, Patients will describe feeling like maybe they can shift their belief systems more easily. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they can close their eyes and sort of see their belief systems in geometric patterns and it allows them to be able to shift those, right? And your belief systems can really form your perception. So from from a psychodynamic perspective and psychological perspective, it can kind of push your belief structures or anything that could be limiting. And then from a chemical perspective, there's no other medication that really works like ketamine. So the way that it upregulates certain neurochemicals like BDNF can really help with neuroplasticity and overall depression. Mm-hmm. And I, I think what I, I think I, 
you correctly summarize it being mind expanding. I think there is an important distinction for me personally, you know, when I think of LSD and Mm -hmm. psilocybin, like you're, you're tripping. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) yes. And, and, you know, for someone as I've joked that the last time I've, you know, taken, you know, even smoked pot or done anything was 1999 and I have no interest in Mm -hmm. doing any of that anymore. Um, I'm not clinically depressed, but I, I think it's, it's safer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, in terms of the, it, it, look, it, it's developing and something I've, I've said here, when you lose control of your, your mental health, mm-hmm. it's very hard to reclaim. Mm-hmm. And even though psilocybin and LSD are very promising and the work they're doing at MAPS is very, super interesting. You know, I always say like, there's some risk there. Mm-hmm. And I come back to, you know, if when you do it, you have to do it in a setting where there's a true medical supervision and mm-hmm. you're not going to some dude's house or <laughs> so, to some, you know, Caribbean island or hanging out and getting, getting hugs from someone. I, I love good hugs, but it's all about doing it and the you know people talk about setting all the time but I, I i go a step further it's not just setting it's medical supervision medical supervision and the source of of whatever chemical you're using right i mean when when you're using doing a ketamine infusion in my office it's from a pharmacy right we're not getting it on the street at some rave or something yes. you know so it's that's, that's key it's that's FDA, exactly and I, I find it fascinating too that it used to be ketamine was originally used i think uh I think it was world during war first mm-hmm. for surgery. Yes. And it's still used as an yeah. anesthetic agent. Yeah. You know, it's just, a, it's a dosage issue, right? So when, when we're trying to put you under for surgery, well, you, you really don't want to be present. So that's the point. And you can do that, you know, with higher dosages of ketamine, but when we're dealing with, you know, mood issues or pain issues, it's a, it's a much lower dosage. And the, the goal there is to get it to the, to the right level where you, you have a connection to yourself and, there's an expansion happening or mm-hmm. more self-awareness. We're not trying to get to the point where you're so dissociated that, that you lose yourself because that's that's not the goal. That's not what's helpful. Well, to me, the world of well-being is always at its core about getting in touch with yourself and tuning mm-hmm. in and, and, that, and not tuning out. Yes. And my view somewhat on the harder core psychedelics is you're escaping, you know, mm-hmm. in, so, in some sense you're escaping. Yes. Um, what's your take on some of the harder core ones? You know, I think I think we're going to find that ketamine has sort of expanded a little bit the medical community's concept of what might be helpful for mood, particularly. Yep. I mean, I think that we're going to start to, we're starting to see more, you know, acceptance and stu- microdosing ecstasy, for example, when it comes to treating um, anxiety and microdosing psilocybin. I think. You know, the key there is microdosing, right? Mm-hmm. We're trying to help you expand yourself without losing yourself. And I love that. Expand and that's yourself without losing yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I love that. So we have to go back to the spirit part. So, yes. And we'll come back to the science later, but we have to go back to the spirit part because you studied in the University of Virginia Department Department of Psychiatry, mm-hmm. real institution, yes. real, real, it's not, it wasn't online and it, 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 an incredible institution. And within that department, you studied perceptual experiences. Yes. 
So let's just go there. What did that? What did you study? Let's talk about that. So um, through the University of Virginia Department of Psychiatry, they have sort of this division that's kind of off campus and independently funded. I will say um, there's some separation there from the general medical school, but um, it, it's called the Division of Perceptual Studies, which was originally founded by Dr. Ian Stevenson, right? And he he sort of started to f- to found this let's call it department, that initially started by studying children with past life memories. Um, And so what he would do basically is he would get these cases of children that would say, I remember X, Y, and Z. I remember being X, Y, and Z. And he would he would go as a physician and interview the children and try to see if these cases were, I mean, what the word that he used was verifiable. If there was enough evidence that it would say, and in the scientific community, we could say that this was a possibility, that this he calls it personality or consciousness was was this previous consciousness or personality and so the division of perceptual studies sort of started there um currently that obviously ian stevenson is no longer with us and the person who sort of runs that now is is um jim tucker who's a child and adolescent psychiatrist so one of the things that the, the division of perceptual studies does is you know go through these cases interview new cases and the big push is trying is trying to see um if they can find verifiable cases in um, cultures that don't automatically accept reincarnation as you know as as a truth, so mm. you know the, the majority of the cases come from places like India where the reincarnation is sort of more in the consciousness. There are cases in the United States. There are more cases in the United States. We're just sort of bringing the awareness around that topic. So one of the things that the Division of Perceptual Studies studies or children with past life memories that are spontaneous, not induced, I'm meaning not induced not by induced. hypnosis. So what was the most interesting case you came across? I think there were, there were a few. I mean, there's books on um, Jim Tucker's, yep. you know, you can you can look those up and, and read them. And he, he's, he's um, you know, he's a doctor. He's very clinical. I think that the cases that, for me, were most interesting were the ones that were really not published so the cases where <laughs> they always are yes, aren't they <laughs> yeah the hidden ones um the cases where um for example there was a there was a little boy who had a memory of he had died in an accident where he lost his arm and in this next life he was born without the same arm so ones where there were actual you know physical injury that then sort of war- was also incarnated in this lifetime um, there were a couple cases, I believe they were Native American, where um, there were 12 grandchildren, all who had verifiable past life memories of different times in their grandfather's life, and their grandfather had passed away before they were born. So that's, I think that's really interesting and sort of pushes the boundary of what, of what we think about consciousness a little bit. Um, and then... The, some of the American cases are also really interesting where there was like a little boy that was born in Oklahoma and, you know, kept saying to his mother, like, why am I not in Hollywood and where's my pool with the TV? And, and <laughs> I ask that question too sometimes. Where's too. my pool? Exactly. Why, why do I not have a big pool with the TV? Yeah. And he was very interested in Hollywood and his mother um, brought him, you know, would get him these books at the library. I mean, I, I don't think they were very wealthy um, family and he went through was going through this book one day and said oh look there's me and um you know they did more research and realized that you know the memories that he had were were of being 
a Hollywood agent in the 50s, and actually the, the that person's sister was still alive, and they were able to bring that the sister and the little boy together to, and talk. And the sister sort of really started to believe that this, you know, this was her brother, and they developed a relationship because of what the child said because about... of his memories. Wow. Yeah, but very specific memories of the, you know, the color of their car when they were young, those type of things. Wow, I just got tingles. So. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I have to, wow, I have a lot of questions. So one of them is, so our daughter Ellie, you know, is three. Mm-hmm. She we, she has a, a sister, Grace. She, she's been saying lately, I have a sister and I have a brother. Mm-hmm. And so we're like, okay, so is Ellie just, is that her imaginary friend? Or is this like her friend at her little preschool? Or she tapping into something in a past life or what? <laughs> and how do you know? Well, I think the best thing you can do is ask her, right? Because I think if you really, you know, a lot of us sort of poo-poo those things that, you know, our children yes, say. We did, say yeah. Yes, I was like, whatever. No, you have a sister. <laughs> don't hit her. Be nice to Be your sister. Just, yes. <laughs> so I guess the first thing I would do if that came out of my child's mouth is take a pregnancy test. Okay. Yeah. Well, we're not pregnant. Okay. But. So there we go. <laughs> but we will anyway. Uh, yes. Just in case. And then... Um, you know, I think I think she probably would be able to answer that better. You know. So what do I ask her? I I would say you know tell me a little bit more about the brother. Tell me more about your brother. What's his name? What, how old is he? What does he like to do? Is was he? You know, do you have memories of him, or do you think he's 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 going to be here later? Like I would I would ask her, because I think I think children have a lot of really uh, special information that we sort of shut off as we get older. Yeah. What do we do wrong when we get older? We lose our intuition. We te- we just poo-poo on this stuff so how do we as adults tap into this i think it's just a process of learning to listen to yourself to slow down you know i think that we we our our bodies are have so much wisdom and if we just kind of learn how to stop and ask ourselves what what is really happening in this moment what the information i'm getting can i decipher is this some sort of intuition that I've developed? Is this a fear? Is this, you know, a limiting belief system based on X, Y, and Z from my life? I mean, the, I think the, the key really is slowing down and slowing down is important for, for, you know, cellular health because it decreases your stress level and cortisol will damage your cells. Um, but you can also start to really listen to yourself in those moments and whatever it is that whatever that is for you whether it's doing yoga whether it's doing meditation whether Mm -hmm. it's going to church whether it's you know just taking a few minutes for yourself and eat you know having some tea and chocolate whatever that means for you i think is the is the key you mentioned church how important is having a i know there's there's numerous studies out there but i'm curious your take on the power of having a spiritual practice and believing in something greater than yourself I think it gives us a sense of purpose. And I think from an existential perspective, you know, humans, if you slow down, you start to question those those things. What's the point of being here? What does this mean? You know, what's my sense of purpose and what I want to create for my, my actual physical life and in this time and space? So I, I think whatever that looks like for you is, is sort of an important sense. I tend to see the my happier patients have some sort of sense of spirituality, and that also gives them more of a sense of safety. And I think that's really key when it comes to sort of expanding and growing your life. So where I'm heading with spirituality and purpose is the other thing you studied at UVA, mm-hmm. near-death experiences. Mm-hmm. What did you find there? Well, 
so Bruce Grayson is the person who sort of runs all of the the near-death experiences studies. Now, near-death experiences are really difficult to study because <laughs> yeah. you don't know if Sonny's going to have one or not, you know. And so to designing a, you know, a medical study on near-death experiences is actually quite difficult, although we tried. But, you know, it, it was notoriously frustrating because we would try to, you know, set up markers in the emergency room or, or so that, you know, if somebody had a near-death experience, you could ask them if they saw, I don't know, the frog painted on top of the shelf or whatever, <laughs> if they were floating above themselves. But, you know, inevitably, when there was a near-death experience, like they weren't in the right room or, you know, sure. nobody bothered to ask them or whatever. So what 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 he does is is he started to actually be able to measure the effects of the near death experience on the on the patients who have had a near death experience rather than what was actually happening in the moment because that's quite difficult, um, and I think you know you you find a few things um, you know patients will describe a sense of wellness seeing a bright light being sort of um, magnetically pulled out of their body um, and then inevitably kind of being unhappy that they came back but that that this experience profoundly changed them and changed their priorities in their life um and so when you when you talk to these these people you can see it's palpable how intense this experience was and how important um I mean, you know, my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, actually had a near-death experience, and, and to the day that she died, it was it was the one, probably one of the most powerful things she she experienced, and you know, she she never forgot, and you could feel how important it was when she would talk about it. How'd she describe it? I'm curious. Um, so she um, she actually had it while she so you know she's. Um, was born in the 20s and so to marry my grandfather she had to, she was a Quaker and she had to convert to be Catholic and so very serious back then very serious very serious today actually yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> even more serious back then so she you know she had to go to these you know she's talked about these um you know classes she had to go to and you know my grandmother sort of has a little bit of my personality or I have a little bit of her. So she liked to push the boundary Depending a little bit. Depending how we're talking about consciousness. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and so she, she said, you know, I remember that this did the, the day that this happened, I had was in this catechism class and I asked the priest, um, why do you not agree with birth control, but you agree with going to war? Ooh. And he said to her, you're not here to question me. You're here to have faith. And that did not go over well with my grandmother. I don't think that goes over well with anyone listening. No. <laughs> so she and th- so that day she had her near death experience, and she said she would she described um, a light pulling her sort of magnetically out of her body, um, and seeing sort of sort of the earth as though you would in space. Although at that point, you know, in her in, in the world, nobody had like been to the moon, um, and entering this place where she just felt light. She felt the presence of the divine as she sort of described it. And she says, you know, what I remember is being there and not wanting to leave and knowing, you know, having all the the answers to my questions. And she said, after I got the answers, I was feeling myself being pulled back into my body and going, no, like, don't let me go back. I don't, I don't want to go back there. And you know, being pulled back anyway, and then trying to negotiate and saying, fine, if I have to go back, just let me, you know, remember the answers to these questions. And she came back, 
she did not remember the answers to the questions, nor does she remember the questions. But she, you know, even to the day that she passed away, she would say, you know, the point is that I know that the answers are out there. That I have faith and I've had this experience where I knew that my answers were, mm. my questions were answered. Um, and and when she would talk about that experience, it, it was it was just so palpable that it was real for her. So, you know, a couple of weeks ago, the, the tragedy with Kobe Bryant and a number mm-hmm. of people, and I think my take and, and why that affected so many people, um, you know, it, it really speaks to the fragility of life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that day there was just a heaviness and you were hugging our kids and just like, it, I think the fragility of life, I think that that's what it was. Life is, mm-hmm. you know, life is precious. Hold on to your loved ones. So with that being said, um, on one hand, life is fragile, and on the other hand, you, you've, you've <laughs> zooming out in the macro, you've studied mm-hmm. two experiences near death mm-hmm. and past life memories. How does it change your view? Like in a day like that, when, when it's like, you know, you're holding your kids tight, there's tragedy, tragedy. Mm-hmm. life is precious, but on the other hand, maybe there's something else going on that's much, much bigger. Mm-hmm. How do you manage that? Well, you know, I, I believe that there is something much, much bigger. I mean, I feel like, you know, I've had enough of my own personal spiritual experiences that have, you know, shown me that there is something greater than myself. And that's, that's something that really actually grounds me in this life and gives me a real sense of safety. So when something like that happens, it does, you know, your sense of spirituality doesn't change the grief. It doesn't change the pain. It doesn't change the way, you know, those, those families will be changed going forward in this, you know, three-dimensional world that we live right now as physical beings but I think it can give you know them a certain sense or anybody a a certain sense of um, peace and awareness when when they can zoom out a little bit but I don't think it will change the actual grief that that you experience when you lose a loved one particularly children so what do you believe in in terms of the afterlife you know I don't I don't know that I can say it, it, it actually even verbalize it. I mean, I think that, that consciousness sort of continues to exist. Um, the way that that looks, I don't even know that we can conceive of. I mean, you know, my paternal grandmother was, um, would consider herself a Sufi. And, you know, when I was very young, I asked her, what do you think happens when, when we die? And she said, well, you know, I think that it's, we become sort of like a droplet of water in a lake, right? There's sort of this collective consciousness that you, you know, you sort of go home, you go back to that place. And, you know, that, that actually was a really important thing um, for me to hear at that point in my life. I think it was, I think I asked her that question. I was eight. Um, Wow. Precocious eight year old. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That, that I think is the true statement. Um, and and that sort of formulated, you know, the, my my perspective on on what happens. So that how, makes sense. so how would you define collective consciousness, or just wrap, how do we wrap our heads around? I joked to you on before. You know, we've had Deepak Chopra on here numerous times. He's so passionate about consciousness, mm-hmm. and on one hand, he blows your mind, and the other hand, it's a little hard to wrap your head around. Mm-hmm. What's your take on how do, how do you define consciousness? You know, I sort of define consciousness in a really simple way. It's a sense of awareness. And, you know, I think that 
living in this body with the limited brain function that we have right, right now, I, I don't think that we're going to get a, a real handle on what is consciousness. I don't think we're going to have that sense living in a three-dimensional body. I think you can get closer. I think you can have spiritual experiences that can sort of expand that sense. You can, you know, some people have, you know, spiritual experiences on a low dose of ketamine. Some people have them, you know, well, ideally without needing, you know, drug use. Doing breath work. Breath, breath, breath work can do it. Huge, yeah. Meditation can do it. You can have a lot of spiritual experiences when, you know, somebody um, you care about, you know, in those moments when they pass away, particularly if they're a parent or a grandparent, it's different when, you know, it's sort of out of alignment with, with the laws of nature, right? If you mm-hmm. have a child or something that passes away. I think there's a lot of things that can sort of help to to expand that sense. But I, I don't know that we're ever going to be able to have a clear linear sense of what that means because I don't I don't know that it's linear I'm not sure that consciousness is actually held within within physical time and space Mm. and we are currently it was interesting so you mentioned like death and I'll never you know I lost my father when I was 19 unexpectedly heart attack here one day gone and I'll never forget I was obviously very upset. And I think in retrospect, took years to like, mm-hmm. you know, went to college, started drinking way too much, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> took, yeah. took a while to get over it, but I'll never, it was so odd. I remember being at the funeral and I had a profound sense of well being. Mm-hmm. It was like odd. Mm-hmm. And then losing other people in my life, like not the case. Like yeah. I, was me- I was mess of funerals, couldn't hold it together, mm-hmm. but there was something about that. Mm-hmm. I was like, how, I'm like, this is interesting. It's weird. Yes. <laughs> um, it made me think of that. Um, I think. I think. Um, you probably, if you really talk to people about this, you probably hear that more than not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, on the subject of consciousness, one of the other many interesting things about you is you went to this school that I say like is super interesting, but like no one's ever heard about mm-hmm. the Barbara Brennan School of Healing mm-hmm. and. Barbara is super interesting. So can you talk about Barbara's background as an ex-NASA scientist and, sure. and, and who she who she is and the school and why you attended and what you did there? So um, when I was in medical school, I um, became a little disillusioned with the whole um, really? medical field. <laughs> even in the depart- even in perceptual studies. Well, this was before that. Okay. This was before that. Okay. So before well, right. before I found the division of perceptual studies where when, they found me. When you study medicine you're in school for like a dozen years. Yeah. I always forget that. Yeah, it's 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 not that fun. Um but you know, I, I realized that what I was looking for for my sense of wellness, what I was looking for as a patient was not really addressed, right? There was, you know, this is how your kidney works, this is how your liver works, and like, okay, that's important. But I felt like there was something else missing. And um, through my own awareness, I mean, I, I guess these alternative things I was always exposed to because my father was a nuclear physicist, is a nuclear physicist, and my mother, is now an attorney, but she has a master's degree in parapsychology. So these these questions, you know, were we always talked about in my house and try, trying to figure out how to rectify, you know, my father's very scientific way of looking at everything, and my mother, who was, you know, would tell me stories about how she had to go to this seance and that seance, you know, while she was studying these things and what her experiences were, and trying, you know, as a child, being like, okay, what, <laughs> what do I do with this information? <laughs> So, you know, 
in trying to answer those questions, I found Barbara Brennan. And um, what I liked about her is that she she also had a scientific background. She's actually an astrophysicist, and she was working for NASA. And so, you know, when I went to this this school, you know, Barbara would tell the story of you know how she got to where she is. And I'm not sure that this information is actually available online. But um, there's like she's so there's so little information about her online. Yeah. So what I mean, <laughs> what I understand from from her is what she, you know what she told us once when she was she was doing a lecture, but. Um, so she she founded this school that sort of bases you know bioenergetics is sort of what I call bioenergetics. it bioenergetics is sort of what I call it. So she she was basically um a, an astrophysicist studying non-visible radiation from the sun, and she um, would talk about how you know that impacted her to realize that there's so many forces that we can't see that are actually really impacting our physical being. And during that time at NASA, she describes sort of having a personal crisis leaving and starting to become interested in other philosophies and psychology and starting to work with you know, her own individual clients and realizing that she could sense in many different ways the human energy field and that there was a structure and function to the human energy field and that she could that your energy system sort of also held your psychological and physical wellness and so through her experiences she's she's written quite a few books and has founded this school to teach other people about the energy field, how you can work with it, what does it mean, how we can actually formulate a language to even talk about it, rather than just saying this this chakra or that chakra, which you know we has been around for thousands of years. So I'm curious. So one, the school is it a year program, six month program? Just walk me through like the, the curriculum. The, the logistics. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, it's actually a four year program, and you leave with what you, she calls a bachelor's of science, basically. Um, so it's four years and the years are sort of broken down in sort of different relational patterns. So the first year you really learn about the energy field and your relationship with yourself. The second year is about um, the energy field and your relationship with other people and this world. The third year sort of focuses on intentionality and um, your relationship with with the divine. And the fourth year really focuses on um, what she would call your essence and how do we bring that in to you know your healing work into your life and and what that looks like. So the program is really actually quite intense. I mean, you yeah. have to be there. <laughs> um, for, you have to be there physically for uh, five weeks out of the year, and in between, there's you know you have to there's thesis work, there's a lot of, of um, healing work that you have to practice, and a lot of writing to you know and self reflection, and um, sort of what we would call supervision, where you have to kind of work with um, one of the teachers from the school to you know refine your skills and make sure that you know you start to really understand your own psychology because really you know when you when if you are going to um, become an energy healer, right, and use that as a career or see clients, um, they're quite vulnerable, right? And mm -hmm. you bring yourself to that relationship. And so really understanding yourself, understanding, you know, if I'm going to have a reaction to what this person says, uh, you don't want to bring that reaction into the room with you because you're really there to facilitate and support that person's healing and process. So how did you change, you know, Roxana going into the program versus Roxana post-program, your relationship with yourself? 
mm-hmm. first and then your relationship with other people? I think it, it supported me to become more of myself and to really, um, you know, one of the things they really focus on is like, what is intuition? What does that look like for you? What is a reaction? What is a defense pattern? And what is just real information that's important to pay attention to? Something that I think is so critical that we all struggle with is what's intuition and what's, what's the mental chatter? Mm-hmm. Um, for me personally, intuition is something that, you know, it's so powerful. Like you can't, you can't argue with it, right? I mean, you know, some people have mental chatter and they actually hear themselves, right? Hear themselves talking and then say the words. And some people sort of have these nonverbal thoughts that then they verbalize and that's, you know, the way that they think. But intuition can be um, expressed in a lot of different ways. You can feel it in your body. You can feel what somebody else is feeling. You can have these, you know, thoughts that just sort of pop in your head that you feel as completely real where you get this information and go, how, how would I have that information? I think, you know, practicing like, is, is this, is this, is this true or not? Is, um, the information I'm, I'm getting based on fear and learning to slow down and listen to yourself can help you start to determine, is this a thought? Is this a fear? Is this real intuitive information? And, um, to determine that you really kind of have to, I believe you really have to kind of understand your own psychology and your own belief structures to be able to see what's, what's real and what isn't. So for, so individually, it sounds like really about tapping into your intuition. Mm -hmm. So what about with others? How, How do you feel into the energy of someone else, the energy of a room and, and what did that, how did that evolve from pre and post program? So I think, you know, the first thing I think when you're when you're sensing and working with another human being is that you have to know yourself well enough so of that, course. you know, you know, when somebody walks into the room and you feel, I mean, everybody says this, I don't know the energy change because that person is angry, right? I don't want to be around that person or could be positive also, but you know, you, you have to determine, well, am I angry? Am I actually feeling what's going on with me rather than, you know, what's going on with that person? You know, again, I think all the information is right there. If we slow down and teach ourselves to listen, it, it becomes a natural flow, and it's not something you actually have to push yourself to do. So, without for those who can't go to school for mm-hmm. four years, it's about slowing down, meditation, breath work, mm-hmm. yoga, and finding the modality that works for you. I mean, you know, Barbara Brennan has has um, written four books now, so you know those those are I think a great source in learning how to develop a language around the human energy field. I mean, I think that's that's one of the most difficult things when we start to talk about um, any sort of energy work is, is what are the words that I'm, I'm using to describe what I'm feeling? Well, you mentioned energy. Can you detect your own energy or vibrations? And can you detect a friend's energy? And, Scientifically? And, or just with your own experience. And for anyone listening, it's like, how how, how can anyone tap into that and and how can anyone you know harness that if you will for their for their benefit Mm -hmm. well i think it takes it takes practice with the listening right i think that you know the brennan's first book hands of light is is um gives you some nice exercises to practice that um from a scientific perspective i think we're working on trying to 
figure out how to measure this. I think, you know, in 100 years, we'll probably realize that, you know, and we're just trying to figure out how to measure the vibration of our of our cells and our atoms, which we know, you know, vibrate. That's basic physical principle. So, you know, while I was at the Division of Perceptual Studies, they would sort of, they had a Faraday cage, and they would kind of put me in the Faraday cage and try to figure out how do I measure, how do What's we measure? A, can you talk about what <laughs> It's, they put you in a cage. They put you in, it's like a room that has lined with certain metals uh, so that it keeps out any um, excess like garbage, electromagnetic activity from your cell phone or whatever. And so they were trying to figure out how can we actually measure what's happening. So, you know, that's more of an engineering question because I have, I have no idea how to do that. But the, so what I do think you do in the cage? Is, we have to find out what was <laughs> happening in the cage. So basically Brennan style, style healing work. I mean, they would ha they would do it with a lot of different people. What I would do is, is you know, what I was the modality that I was taught with, with uh, at the Brennan School. But they would do other things like have people meditate or... Um, you know, different types of um, intuitives or psychics. They would, they would, you know, have sit in. It's it's really a room. It's not a cage, but they would have sit in the room, and try to figure out how can we measure what they're doing. Is there a way to do that? Interesting. So, you know, there there are two things happening in our conversation. One is you know the the hard science, mm -hmm. and then the other hand, it's stuff that's a little more progressive, if you will, mm -hmm. a little bit out there. But I think what's so interesting is using the science to measure mm -hmm. the stuff that is out there. Why do you think we don't hear so much about some of that research going on? Is it there isn't a lot of research going on or the science community just doesn't like to study things that? Well, are... <laughs> you know, I think, I think in the future at some point, we're gonna realize that all of these things that we call progressive, we just haven't yet figured out how to measure. I mean, I think there's a couple limitations, right? One is funding, right? So who's, who's gonna pay for us to be able to study this? Um, you know, at the Division of Perceptual Studies, it's independently funded by, pe by you know, people who are interested in this. So that gives uh, um, them a little bit more flexibility in the type of research that they're doing. Um, but, you know, I, I think that you know, there's also a little bit of a rigidity around the scientific community at this point. So, you know, you have to, you have to really want to push the boundary and to study this stuff and sort of, you know, fight well, against what's considered, uh, you know, standard of care. Well, yeah, I go back to your parents. Mm -hmm. you, you are your parents on one hand. Yes. <laughs> this whole thing, everything I'm doing is just trying to rectify no, my childhood. No, no, but what, where I was yeah. going was, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head as scientists or so many people in the medical community are drawn to hard data and science yeah. and knowing and they don't like uncertainty. And look, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. Because if I'm getting surgery, I don't like uncertainty right. either. Right, right. <laughs> um, and so you have, I think, people were just wired that way mm -hmm. and you're unique because you've got the best of both your parents you know the hard science and we'll say the, the more provocative yes more prog more progressive uh, healing modalities if you will but i think i think you know the interesting thing for me you know in, in having these conversations with my you know father who's very scientific um is that you know the field of physics is starting to get to the point where they're where they're you know they are spiritual. They do think that there, you know there's something else going on. There's some sort of you know magic, mathematical template, or whatever you want to call it, nature, God, whatever. Um, but I also th I think it was really interesting that I was having this one conversation with my father, and he and I say, but how do you come up 
with your no your next idea with what you're going to study and he looked at me and he said well i see it in my head and i know what is it, what's going to work and then i just do it and it works and i remember looking at him and thinking so you don't think that that's like some sort of intuition or you're like because other people don't work like that and he was like i don't know that's just how i am so i i think that you know even the really hard scientists, you know, I think that they're human, right? And and I, I believe that intuition is just sort of like a human quality we just have to learn to tap into. So I don't, I don't know that we can we can separate our humanity from what, what we choose to do. You know, I don't think you can take that out of being a physician or being a scientist or being, you know, a parapsychologist. So are there any interesting studies out there that you're paying attention to? Or, you know, where do you think the conversation is going to be going in a year from now or 20 years from now? You know, I think, I think what's really, at least in you know the study of near-death experiences or children with past life memories, I think what's what's really pushing is, is when we have, you know, what we would consider a trusted scientist, like that has had an experience that really profoundly changed them. So, for example, even even Alexander, mm -hmm. was a, you know, was it you know a trusted physician and had a near-death experience, and that profoundly changed him and and you know, the book that he wrote and the way that he talks about it is something that has sort of pushed, you know, the medical community to go, okay, this is somebody that we trust that, and they had an experience that sort of pushes the boundaries. Let's look at that. On a philosophical level or spiritual level, or isn't having complete certainty on everything just like boring, <laughs> doesn't it take like the, the zest out of life to some degree? I mean, I think so, but I don't know that we're ever going to have all of the answers um, to everything. I don't think that's, I don't know that that's possible because then we just create more questions. Yeah. We're an interesting species. Mm -hmm. So what about w with regards to cellular health? What's interesting to you there and where do you think that's going? So, you know, I think that, that patients are pushing for more cellular health for our, you know, your, their doctors to say like, actually what's going on? Like how do, how can I support my cells to function better and communicate better? Um, one of the things that I think is, is really interesting. I mean, there's this whole push in medicine about stem cells and, you know, I think the next stem cells are sort of pushed us into into becoming more interested in signaling molecules. So maybe we don't need the stem cells, but maybe what, what, the stem cells utilize to tell your cells to be healthier or younger or proliferate um, are signaling molecules called exosomes. And I think that, you know, in a hundred years from now, we're going to start to utilize these signaling molecules to maximize our health. Hopefully before I need a facelift, <laughs> one day there'll be a, you know, a peptide or an exosome that I can just inject into my body that will tell my cells to pull up my face and tighten up. And I think that that's, that's kind of where we're going. So Dave Asprey says he wants to live to like 180 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And, and he, what he'll say is, you know, by the time I get sick in 30, 40 or whatever, I start mm -hmm. to age, science will have caught up and then I, that actually be a reality. What's your take on longevity and what's possible? And Part of me is like living to 180 and when everyone else is in like, what's, the, what, what's, what's fun about that? Yeah. I mean, I think it depends on your quality of life, right? If, yes. if you're, if I'm functioning like this in 180 years, I mean, that might be great. I don't know that, I don't know that I want to live to 180 without a good quality of life. Yes. 
Right. So I think that, you know, every generation we start to live longer and we have more questions and we're trying to, you know, uh, maximize our ability to live well. And I think that's that's the, that's the biggest key. Do you think we're approaching that point where, you know, we've had David Sinclair on here mm-hmm. and he's doing all these interesting tests on himself with that foreman? And mm-hmm. um, do you think we're, we're getting to the point where even anti-aging is really a thing? I think so. I think I think you know. I think of anti-aging as function as functional medicine and cellular health. So if we can keep your cells from being damaged and functioning well, we're going to decrease the aging process. All it's all about cellular health. Mm-hmm. So how do we balance all of this? How do we balance this, the developing science? How do we balance intuition? Um, how do we become on one hand, you know, one of my favorite lines about health is from Frank Lipman, who I see is, you know, how do you become the conductor of your own healthcare orchestra? Mm-hmm. And how do you, so when I think about that, I think about, you know, getting the right labs and, and right. all of that. And then the other hand, you know, being a, being a better listener, being a better listener mm-hmm. to your body, to your intuition. And because of all these things, we started the conversation all connected. Yeah. How do we do that? Well, I think I think listening to yourself is the key, right? If if you feel that there's something going on in your body that's off, I, I think it's really important to trust that, right? So you know, I see patients all the time that say, "I don't know, my doctor said I'm fine, but I don't." There's something that's off, and so I think you have to stay curious about that and to not give up. And it's really important to have the right support system in in the healthcare world to help you stay curious if you feel like there's something. That, that doesn't feel right or doesn't feel good. Right? And, and it, you know, sometimes patients can't put their finger on what it is. And so it's, it's our job as, as physicians to try to help them figure it out. And in this age of testing and data, which I'm a big believer in, when is a TMI? When is it just too much? <laughs> you know, I, I think that, that you have to be careful that um, some people get very anxious about death and dying and then you know they they really can ruminate on how do i make sure i'm i'm the best i'm in the best health that i'm not going to pass away i mean i i think that you know at least in in our american culture we sort of think that death is optional and you know we're not getting out of here alive regardless of how long you live i don't think anyway maybe in a thousand years i have no idea but um to, to sort of come to terms with that and try to maximize, you know, your quality of life while you're here, I think it's really important. Um, and I think that's, that's where the importance of, you know, the, the spirituality comes in. A hundred percent. I go back to, I think why Kobe Bryant hit people so hard. It's, mm-hmm. We could do anything, you know, we could be eating the perfect diet and mm-hmm. everything. And then, you know, boom, hit by mm-hmm. a, hit by a car, go down right. in a helicopter. It just doesn't mm-hmm. fragility of life. Like this idea that, some ways we don't have control yeah and learning to be comfortable with the unknown right is 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 important because i I don't know that we'll ever have all of the answers um so so you know spirituality can create a sense of safety there and what are your i think so many people struggle with the unknown ambiguity Mm -hmm. any advice for for basically everyone (laughs) I think you can ground into the things that you do know, right? Um, and the more that we do learn to listen to ourselves, the the easier it is to, to do that and then to approach the unknown with curiosity rather than fear. It's funny, you know, 
Colleen and I, there, there's so much unknown in our life being entrepreneurs and mm-hmm. <laughs> running a company that's growing. And, you know, for, for me, I kind of, I, I try to create structure around mm-hmm. the things that I can control. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whether it's travel, for example, vacation, mm-hmm. like I book our travel so far out. Like I know at this time of year, you know, we always go away. So yeah. I'm going to like create the structure, the, the things that I can control, I will control. Mm-hmm. And then everything else I try to. Yes. <laughs> and it's this idea of, you know, there is so much you can control and you should try to control that mm-hmm. and then need to be okay with the things you can't. Yes. And I think life in general is a st- is, is the balance of structure and function, right? Even our physical bodies has have a skeletal system, then we have the connective tissue that's a, that's more fluid. There's structure and function there, right? Brennan would describe the energy field in a very similar way. And I think that the way that we, you know, the way that you approach controlling what you can or empowering yourself around making sure you have at least, you know, two or 16 vacations a year is really important to, to keep you going when, you know, you're here until midnight and then have two children at home that don't let you sleep. Yeah, I, I think I think it's the balance. I call it the type A struggle that everyone struggles with. And I like to say, you know, all you can do is everything you can do and then you mm-hmm. need to let go. Mm-hmm. And that piece is important, the surrender. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think we, we have, for type A's, you're used to just working really hard and, mm-hmm. and getting it and having a goal and pushing through. And look, that, that will take you very far. In some ways, it's critical to mm-hmm. success and just life in general. Mm-hmm. And on one hand, so is letting go. Yes, and the, the rest is important, right? Even just for your adrenal function, you've got to be able to rest and sleep. So it's this, one of my other favorite lines about that, taking it a step further, um, Jim Carrey had a quote years ago about manifestation. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you, you know, I believe in manifestation. He's got this great story where I think he wrote himself like a $20 million check, and then sure enough, that happened. Um, and he's like, I, I believe in the power of manifestation, but you can't go manifest something and then go to the couch and eat a ham sandwich. Mm-hmm. You have to do the work. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's important. Mm-hmm. You have to do the work and yes. you have to let go. Mm-hmm. Well, Roxana, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm.